Hi, Big Bummer here. This is For the Record Program number 1261. Bong Bong and the Marcos Continuum. This is being recorded on September 23rd of the year 2022. Before getting into the main body of the broadcast, three links. These are at the top of each written for the record description, and also at the top of each Food for Thought post in the upper left-hand side of the front page of the SpitfireList.com website. One of those links will enable you to subscribe to the podcasts that are being made by Sister Station, WFMU. So if podcasts are the best way for you to consume the program, which is uh, frequently the case in our smartphone-oriented society, then, again, Sister Station WFMU is podcasting the programs. Another link will enable you to obtain the 32-gigabyte flash drive that uh, contains not only all of my, uh, at this point, 43-plus years on the air, both printed and uh, audio, but also a mini-library of old anti-fascist books. The newest iteration of the flash drive will be will be available shortly, and it will have not only all of the coverage that I've done to date on the war in Ukraine, but also the programs on Pandemics Incorporated. So again, uh, another of those links will enable you to get the flash drive, which is available for a very minimal tax-deductible contribution, and I get no money whatsoever from that flash drive. There also is, uh, well, I would recommend that people get in the habit of following along with the comments, most of which are made by our brilliant contributing editor Perifractal, some of them by other intelligent listeners. Again, there is much too much going on for me to cover in a one-hour weekly program. So, again, please follow the comments made by Parafractal on the SpitfireList.com website. And also, I am doing a Patreon site now. There, again, there's much too much information coming out for me to cover in a one-hour weekly broadcast. So I am doing three Patreon talks per week with machine uh, produced, I should say, uh, transcripts, not edited because they're not edited, but uh, machine transcripts. Those three talks often uh, total almost four hours a week, and again, there are the machine the transcripts and also bi-weekly Zoom Q&A sessions as well. And uh, again, there is a link at the top of each written for the record description and at the top of each Food for Thought post that will enable you to access all of those items. Now, the title of the program, Bong Bong and the Marcos Continuum, Bong 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 is the nickname under which uh, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. has operated for quite some time, and recently Ferdinand Jr. was elected president of the Philippines with the assistance of some family members of uh, Mr. Duterte, who was his predecessor. 
the Marcos Continuum is basically a slight adaptation or corruption of the title of a book, a magnificent book, that we'll be using for the bulk of uh, this program, and that is The Marcos Dynasty, subtitled The Corruption of Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos. It was offered by Sperling Seagrave, with a lot of input from his brilliant wife, Peggy. Both of them, sadly, uh, now passed away, and... Uh, my reflections on the threats that they uh, were subjected to and the attempt on Sperling's life in 2011 in For the Record Program 1106. Uh, Ferdinand Marcos did indeed uh, head a dynasty of sorts, and we're going to be taking a look not only at indications that Ferdinand Jr., a.k.a. Bong Bong, will be continuing in his father's footsteps, but we should note that Ferdinand Jr. was part and parcel to Ferdinand Sr.'s extremely lucrative gold deals. Ferdinand Sr., as we have looked at in many programs, uh, all of them accessing material from the consummately important book Gold Warriors, the secret, the subtitle, America's Secret Recovery of Yamashita's Gold, that was co-authored by the aforementioned Sterling Seagrave and the aforementioned Peggy Seagrave, and it, uh, covers the billions of dollars in gold that were secreted in the Philippines and uh, also some of which were taken back to the Japanese home islands. And Ferdinand Marcos used that gold as not only a foundation for his own personal empire, but also as a vehicle for furthering the corruption of individuals and institutions around him. And in turn, that gold was shared not only with the uh, kingpins of the Japanese fascist empire, who were put right back in power after the close of World War II by Douglas MacArthur and company in order to prosecute the Cold War in the Pacific. We've covered that in many programs. And in this program, we're going to be taking a look, uh, first of all, at how Bong Bong, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., was part and parcel to his father's gold deals. Uh, recently, in a visit to the Philippines, Anthony Blinken uh, schmoozed with Bong Bong Marcos, and uh, they basically shook hands and uh, were able to agree on an anti-China policy. My guess is that the Golden Lily Loot will be not only a foundation for American covert operations, it also will be used to uh, grease the palms of uh, not only individuals and institutions who are deemed to be essential for American alliance during the, or in the course of, I should say, the struggle against China and Russia. And it also, uh, the gold figures to shore up whatever financial institutions, public or private, are stressed by what is going on with the global economy. So I think that not only is Bong Bong, a.k.a. Ferdinand Marcos Jr., uh, in all probability going to continue in his father's fascist footsteps, but in turn the golden lily spigot will be turned on still wider. 
Uh, during the course of the program, I want to note uh, a number of things. In particular, uh, not only the deep politics of the Philippines, but also the class politics that not only were fundamental to uh, the dynamics of fascism in the Philippines before, during, and after World War II, but also how the unequal distribution of wealth, in particular uh, the unequal distribution of land ownership in which uh, wealthy individuals were able to maintain large real estate empires, often uh, agricultural in nature, and in turn many of the peasant farmers who were obliged to labor on those territories not only got royally screwed, but often rebelled against their uh, landlord masters. Uh, Those rebellions were much larger than communist or Marxist rebellions. However, uh, often the rebels involved did ultimately gravitate toward uh, Marxism in order to uh, achieve a degree of uh, ideological and operational continuum. Uh, I want to note several pairs of individuals who will overlap the deep politics that we're going to be looking at. Uh, One are the Laurel family, father, Jose Laurel and son, Salvador Laurel, they were respectively a Philippine oligarch who became the head of the puppet government of uh, the Philippines under, uh, under Japanese occupation, and his son, Salvador, who became the vice president under Corazon Aquino. She was the widow of Benino Aquino Jr., who was not only a protege of Edward Lansdale and the CIA, but who in turn was the son of Benino Aquino Sr., who was a Philippine oligarch who was among the class allied to coin the term Philippine aristocracy who supported the Japanese occupation of the Philippines because the Japanese looked after the well-being of those who were well-to-do, including and especially the landed aristocracy. Uh, We're also going to be looking at uh, Ferdinand Sr. and Ferdinand Jr., again, uh, Bong Bong. And note as well uh, the role of Corazon Aquino, who uh, became the president of the Philippines after her husband, uh, Ninoy, or Benino Aquino Jr., was assassinated by Marcos. And although ostensibly a, uh, a, quote, reformer, unquote. In fact, she was part and parcel to the unequal distribution of wealth in the Philippines, and her selection, or the selection for her, I don't know which was the case, of Salvador Laurel, the son of the Japanese, the head of the Japanese occupation government, uh, suggests that the golden lily spigot and continuum uh, continued under Corazon Aquino. I also want to note the deep politics that uh, we're going to be looking at, in particular how the Chinese merchant class uh, all around the Pacific, but in this case in the uh, Philippines, uh, relied on clan associations and in turn 
during the Cold War, many of the Chinese clans in the Philippines and elsewhere uh, were basically uh, subsumed by, coerced by the Kuomintang of Chiang Kai-shek, and along with the Kuomintang-controlled Chinese clans and the residual Japanese interest in the Philippines and elsewhere. Uh, basically, the U.S. drew not only on the Kuomintang's fascism, but on the fascism of uh, the kingpins of Imperial Japan, including and especially Kadama Yoshio, whom we've spoken about in the past, and Sasakawa Ruichi. So we're going to begin by uh, excerpting Again, a remarkable and consummately important book, Gold Warriors, America's Secret Recovery of Yamashita's Gold. We have spoken about this uh, and used this book in many programs, and uh, I can't stress strongly enough that without having read this book, uh, really, I think the, a, a hands-on understanding of the world in which you live is uh, difficult, if not impossible. Now, very quickly... Uh, talking about Bong Bong Marcos and his involvement with his father's gold recoveries, which we have spoken about in the past. And they, the amount of gold, the wealth here, is mind-boggling. The uh, Seagraves write in Gold Warriors, as evidence that Marcos was in possession of enormous quantities of gold bullion far in excess of known Philippine reserves, private investigator Arlene Friedman tracked down two Australian brokers who, in the early 1980s, had negotiated nine contracts with Marcos to sell a total of $1.63 trillion in gold. They established for the court record and to the satisfaction of the jury that the deals were made and were not a fiction. The documentation they provided established beyond any doubt that Marcos did have in his possession and did sell $1.63 trillion worth of gold bullion. The Australians would also testify that while visiting Marcos, they were blindfolded and taken to a warehouse where the blindfolds were removed, and they saw that the warehouse was full of gold bars. Norman Tony Bacus, D-A-C-U-S, a Las Vegas investor, told Friedman that on a visit to the Philippines, he was taken to Mount Apo, that's capital APO, where Marcos was building a Mount Rushmore-style memorial to himself. Bacos said the president's son, Bong Bong, took him in the secret tunnels in Mount Apo, where he was shown boxes of gold bars and other treasure. Bacco said Bong Bong told him this gold was waiting to be flown out of the country for the U.S. military at the behest of the CIA. One more time. Bacco said Bong Bong told him this gold was waiting to be flown out of the country by the U.S. military at the behest of the CIA. Bacchus was an expert source because he was linked by marriage to one of the senior Marcos intelligence officers, Colonel Pimentel, P-I-M-E-N-T-E-L, who arranged a number of these gold deals and personally escorted the gold to its destination as a senior member of the umbrella. That is a network uh, of 
operatives and recipients of the Golden Lily Loot uh, that was organized by uh, Sampi, uh, former OSS agent and CIA operative uh, Santa Romana. Again, we've spoken about that at great length. Bacchus also helped Pimentel and Marcos brokered the huge Luxembourg gold deal described in Chapter 14, for which he was paid a hefty commission. Uh, the point being here that not only was Bonbon Marcos part and parcel to his father's machinations vis-à-vis the golden lily gold, but the sums are unbelievable, nation-buying sums. The Australian brokers here brokered $1.63 trillion in gold. That would have been in the 1980s. That is only part, apparently, of the Marcos gold uh, stash. And just that $1.63 trillion would be worth quite a bit more today. The point being that Bong Bong Marcos was not only part and parcel to his father's uh, golden lily recoveries, but in all probability will be continuing the Marcos dictatorship or the Marcos dynasty, as the Seagraves called it, and uh, will be doing so at least from an economic standpoint and political standpoint to the benefit of the U.S., hence his uh, schmoozing with Anthony Blinken. Now, we're going to turn again to, uh, well, not turn again, but we're going to turn, turn to a remarkable book for the balance of this program, also authored by Sterling Seagrave, and with a generous assistance from his wife, Peggy. The Marcos Dynasty, subtitled The Corruption of Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos. And uh, there are numerous editions of this particular book. This paperback edition was published in 2017 by Endeavor Press, and it was first published in 1988 by Ballantine Books. In uh, a number of programs, including for the record 1106, we talked about the pressure and the threats that came to the Seagraves, in part because of their work on the Marcos dynasty. And what we're going to begin by looking at uh, is an, an aspect of Asian political culture that really uh, goes pa- over the heads of Americans, really, that way shouldn't say even goes over their heads, about which they know nothing. And that is some of the deep politics surrounding the Chinese populations of other Asian countries. Uh, the members of these countries, the Chinese citizens of those countries, uh, often have very strong associations with each other through the clans to which they belong. There are also numerous uh, secret societies, some of which are commercially based, some of which have criminal foundations, some of which are a little of both. But in the Philippines proper, there was a very large and powerful Chinese minority. They wielded a lot of influence in the Philippine business community, and they often had illegitimate children who were not viewed with I shouldn't say illegitimate, but they had out-of-wedlock children who were often viewed not with disdain and social ostracism, but with a degree of uh, affectionate 
paternalism to coin a term. It appears that Ferdinand Marcos Sr. was actually the out-of-wedlock son of an influential Chinese judge, Judge Chua. And uh, one of the dynamics of Philippine society is that the uh, Chinese mestizos, as uh, the Seagraves called them, uh, often were the benefactors of uh, the godfathers who were in fact, the Chinese godfathers who were in fact their actual uh, biological fathers. That appears to have been the case with both uh, George Chua and Ferdinand Marcos, his son. And for our purposes here, the clan associations of the Chinese in the Philippines and in turn the coercion and co-option uh, of, or co-opting, I should say, of those Chinese clans by the Kuomintang, by the fascist uh, entity that ruled nationalist China and then later Taiwan under uh, Chiang Kai-shek. This was the focal point of a long series of programs that I did for the record, 1194 through 1214. Uh, as the Cold War developed, uh, and as Chiang Kai-shek uh, solidified what aspects of control he could over whatever political milieu, plural, that he could, uh, the Chinese clans in the Philippines were subsumed under Kuomintang stewardship. The Seagraves ripe in the Marcos dynasty, speaking of the Chuas, the Chuas established themselves in the islands early in the 19th century, some of them eventually becoming Filipino citizens, but they never gave up their links to their ancestral home. New generations continued to arrive from Amoy, capital AMOI, and dispersed throughout the archipelago. The branch that settled in and around Laog, L-A-O-A-G, became the leaders of the Chinese community in the Ilocos. By the way, I'm probably butchering many of the pronunciations here. Forgive me, but uh, I'm doing the best I can. Continuing. To protect themselves, the Chuas, capital C-H-U-A-S, and other leading Chinese families organized clan associations in Manila. Once or twice a year, all male members of the Chua family scattered around the islands gathered in Manila, ostensibly for ritual ancestor worship, but actually to assess family and business ventures and to review how one branch of the clan could assist another. It was absolutely essential for individual Chinese to maintain these ties because the clan association was the most important social organization in the islands. The Nationalist Chinese Embassy and many other political or business organizations would have nothing to do with a man who was not introduced by his clan association. He was considered a man without an identity. Eventually, there were nearly 50 official clan groups, most of them registered with the Chinese Embassy and through it in close contact with the Kuomintang in Nanking. The Chua clan was very active in the Chinese Chambers of Commerce, which provided leadership for the Chinese community as a whole. As Mao's forces gained momentum on the mainland, Chinese in the Philippines became the target of intense anti-communist propaganda, which was was bad for business. In the years following World War II, as Chiang Kai-shek's struggle with Mao reached a climax, 
a new federation of Chinese chambers of commerce was formed by Kuomintang loyalists in Manila, drawing its leadership exclusively from clans committed to supporting Chang. The Chua clan was prominent among them. Two of its members served as presidents of the federation. Uh, one more time. In this last sentence again, in the years following, last two sentences, in the years following World War II, as, as Chiang Kai-shek's struggle with Mao reached a climax, a new federation of Chinese chambers of commerce was formed by Kuomintang loyalists in Manila, drawing its leadership exclusively from clans committed to supporting Chiang. The Chua clan was prominent among them. Two of its members served as presidents of the federation. And again, uh, the Chua clan associated with that Kuomintang consortium among the Chinese clans in the Philippines was a foundation for the rise of Ferdinand Marcos, who was an out-of-wedlock son of Judge Chua. And uh, more about the deep politics in the Philippines, which not only involves uh, the Kuomintang and residual fascist and underworld elements from uh, Japan, but which also, uh, it basically, uh, th- this dynamic was fundamental to uh, some of the dynamics of the Philippines under Japanese occupation. And by talking about the uh, early Cold War in the Pacific, Throughout the Far East, Washington was attempting to stall right-wing governments as a first line of defense against communism, and its success depended heavily on two dubious allies, Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek's notoriously corrupt Kuomintang and the Japanese underworld. Because of the nature of things in Asia, conservative political movements derived their power from the muscle of the underworld, which could be paid to knock heads and counted on to resist reform of any variety. In Korea and China, as well as in Japan and the Philippines, MacArthur's G2, General Willoughby, was purging radicals with the single-mindedness of Torquemada and the help of the underworld. In Washington, Senator McCarthy and the China lobby were coming into full climb. Although one day McCarthy and the China lobby would be discredited, by then, MacArthur, Willoughby, and the CIA had midwife a string of bone-crushing regimes calling themselves the Iron Triangle. One leg of this tripod was the Chang regime, transposed to Taiwan and protected by the U.S. 7th Fleet. Generalissimo Chang was anxious to influence the politics of wealthy overseas Chinese and maintained an undercover army of political agents throughout the Far East. This provided an ideal funnel for the CIA's anti-communist funds and a ready-made vehicle for U.S. covert operations. The Philippines became a staging area for intervention in the affairs of Indonesia, Indochina, Thailand, Vietnam, Malaya, and Burma. America's huge air and naval bases in the Philippines provided jumping-off points. Controlling politics in the archipelago became more important after America allowed the Philippines to become independent in 1946. For its part, the Kuomintang became more obsessed than ever with destroying leftist and liberal elements in the Philippines 
and with dominating its Chinese community. A secret war got underway in which ordinary Filipinos became the victims. Uh, actually, a secret war got underway in which ordinary Filipinos became the enemy. They also uh, became the victims as well. So again, note some of the deep politics uh, that uh, maintain that are, are relevant here in Asia, both with regard to uh, Kuomintang influence in the Philippines and with regard to Japanese fascist influence in the Philippines, about which we will have more to say in just a minute. And indeed, uh, we've spoken about uh, Kadama Yoshio and Sasakawa Goichi in numerous programs. Both were primary operatives of the Emperor uh, of Japan during uh, the Second World War and also primary operatives on behalf of those elements put right back in power by MacArthur to prosecute the Cold War in Asia. And we've looked at both uh, Kadama and Sasakawa in numerous programs. Uh, talking about the manifestation of the deep politics, not only in the Philippines, but throughout the Pacific, and looking at how uh, the U.S., and in this case, not only Douglas MacArthur, but his G2, uh, General Charles Willoughby, uh, nay, Karl Abel von Scheppel and Wiedenbach, he was a German-born fascist who was an ardent admirer of, and then after his retirement from the U.S. Army, a, an, an advisor to uh, Francisco Franco. His name, Willoughby's, that is, also crops up in a big way in the context of the assassination of JFK. And uh, note in the passage that I'm going to be uh, talking about, note how uh, Japanese fascists uh, collaborated in the Philippines with MacArthur's forces and with the ethnic Chinese who were under the stewardship, as we've seen, of uh, Chiang Kai-shek and his narco-fascist Kuomintang. Also, later on, we're going to take a look at, in, in this passage, at the Hook Rebellion, that's H-U-K. It was the putting down of the Hook Rebellion that garnered uh, General Edward Lansdale, his uh, primary element uh, on his covert actions resume, as we'll, we will look at over the hooks eventually, that's spelled H-U-K, although they eventually did become uh, Marxist guerrillas mostly by default after having been rejected uh, by the Americans, uh, the hooks actually began as a uh, peasant rebellion, as a uh, landless peasant rebellion against their uh, oligarch landlords prior to World War II. It then continued during World War II with the landed aristocracy enjoying the protection of the Japanese fascists in the Philippines. Note again that the head of state for the Japanese puppet government was Jose Laurel. Jose's son, Salvador, was the vice president under Corazon Aquino, who was the widow of Benino Aquino uh, Jr., a Lansdale and CIA protege who was assassinated by Marcos when it appears that uh, the CIA was getting ready to ease him out. Uh, Benino Aquino Sr. was part of the pro-Japanese uh, Philippine elite who enjoyed the protection of the Japanese in the Philippines. 
turning to the Marcos dynasty. Early in 1946, Sasakawa and Kabama were rounded up by the occupation forces and detained in Sagamo prison for three years. According to Sasakawa, quote, Life in prison was a vacation given me by God. The time he spent in Sagamo, he said, was the key to his political education. With his politically powerful cellmates, Nobusuke Kishi, that's spelled K-I-S-H-I, last name N-O-B-U-S-U-K-E, but again, uh, the Japanese pronunciation puts the last name first. Nobusuke Kishi was not only the first Prime Minister of Japan, he signed the Declaration of War uh, uh, against the U.S. in World War II. He was also a major benefactor of the Unification Church in uh, Japan, and his grandson, uh, Abe Shinzo, also became Prime Minister of Japan and was assassinated a short time ago because of uh, the Japanese institutional links with the Unification Church, including not only Abe Shinzo, but his grandfather, Nobusuke Kishi. And uh, uh, Nobusuke Kishi was a cellmate of Kadama Yoshio, turning again to rereading this last passage. With his politically powerful cellmates, Kishi Nobusuke, favorite prime minister, Kaya Okinori, uh, Yoshio Kabama, and others, Sasakawa joined in planning the resurrection of Japan. This time, their energies and genius would be devoted to economic rather than military imperialism. The wealth that Sasakawa had accumulated and the loot that Kadama had amassed all over Asia would provide the financial foundation for the political organization that would lead the way, the Liberal Democratic Party. By the way, they've been in power in Japan all but four years since the end of World War II. Continuing. The liberation from Sagamo prison and the emergence of Kadama and Sasakawa as two of the leading power brokers in East Asia was part of a package deal they made with Generalissimo Chang and MacArthur's G2, General Willoughby. Facing a showdown with the forces of Mao Zedong, the Generalissimo was seeking help urgently anywhere he could find it. Kadama knew where all the skeletons in China were hidden. As part of the deal, Kadama turned over half of what was then considered to be his immediate personal fortune of $200 million, obviously only a fragment of the whole, to the American Counterintelligence Corps to be split with Chiang Kai-shek. By the way, that was $200 million in uh, immediate post-World War II dollars, but it was a whole lot more, but more like $200 billion today. Continuing. After, let me reread that last sentence for continuity. As part of the deal, Kadama turned over half of what was then considered to be his immediate personal fortune of $200 million, obviously only a fragment of the whole, to the American counterintelligence corps to be split with Chiang Kai-shek. How much Kadama's wealthy cellmates like Sasakawa contributed to the deal has never been disclosed. Willoughby's part in this intrigue becomes understandable when seen in light of the fact that after his retirement from the U.S. Army, he became the chief American advisor to Generalissimo Francisco Franco in Madrid. It was Sasakawa himself who revealed Chang's role when he put it out to an interviewer, quote, I was one of the 54 war criminals released by Chang. Chang pardoned us all. People don't realize this point. Unquote. 
The Biume Basasakawa and Kabama, the Kurumako quote, the men behind the black curtain in Kabuki Fever, the fixtures of Japan's biggest post-war political and commercial deals. In 1975, the Guardian said the two men could pull, quote, enough strings to run a kind of shadow government in Japan, unquote. Privately, the Japanese called Kadama, quote, the monster, unquote. He and Sasakawa became secretly active in sponsoring right-wing elements in the countries Japan had briefly conquered. Men in Bangkok, Jakarta, and Saigon, who had collaborated with the Kempei Pod, were soon back at work for the Kuomintang and the CIA. This last uh, couple of sentences again. Kabama and Sasakawa became secretly active in sponsoring right-wing elements in the countries Japan had briefly conquered. Men in Bangkok, Jakarta, and Saigon, who had collaborated with the Kempei Pod, the Japanese intelligence service in World War II, were soon back at work for the Kuomintang and the CIA. After Japan's defeat in the Pacific War, Sasakawa's real interests resolved around rebuilding Tokyo's economic penetration of Southeast Asia and gaining new leverage for Japan in the Middle East. Sasakawa's boast that his time in prison had been a God-given opportunity was no idle statement, for he and his soulmates emerged with a grand strategy. Sagamo's soulmate Kishi Nobusuke became Japan's prime minister, and Tokyo launched a campaign to rebuild its damaged ties with Jakarta and Manila, offering stepped-up war reparations accompanied by a strong commercial thrust. Sasakawa became president of a new Japan-Philippines Association and a Japan-Indonesia Association, followed by other friendship societies in neighboring countries. Although Kadama was tight-lipped about his part in all this, Sasakawa was a vain man who occasionally revealed glimpses of his secret world. In his advancing years, he suffered from chronic media lip-flap. He was Kadama's geisha, plucking the koto and stroking the shakuhachi for foreigners who had a taste for green tea fascism. It was Sasakawa who volunteered that the special relationship between Ferdinand Marcos and the Japanese Kurumaku grew out of a long-standing friendship. <clears throat> Quote, I was very close to Marcos long before he became president. And what we're going to look at next is a manifestation of the U.S. Cold War uh, utilization of Asian fascism, both that of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, and also that of uh, Imperial Japan with people like Kishi Nabusuke Kishi, Sasakawa Boichi, and Kadama Yoshio. And that is the use of Ferdinand Marcos, who again was a protege of his godfather, Judge Chua, of the Chua clan in uh, the Philippines, which in turn became a part of the Kuomintang-controlled uh, federation of clans in the Philippines. Ferdinand Marcos got one of his first major jobs as an operative for the CIA, uh, shoehorned into that position by Sasakawa Ruichi, and he worked for the CIA in their attempt at ousting 
uh, Sukarno in the Philippines. There was an unsuccessful revolution in the late 50s, and eventually Sukarno was overturned in the bloody uh, revolution or coup d'etat of 1965. But Marcos, Ferdinand Marcos Sr., uh, got one of his first prominent U.S.-backed jobs as an operative for the CIA, courtesy of Sasakawa Ruichi, in the CIA attempt at overthrowing Sukarno in the late 50s in Indonesia. Speaking of Sasakawa and Marcos, it is likely that they became acquainted during the Kirino presidency at the end of the 1940s, when Marcos and other Kirino lieutenants were busy trying to discover where Yamashita's gold was hidden, and, and Fukumitsu was interviewing Japanese government figures and military officers in their behalf. However, they first met by the late 1950s, Marcos and Sasakawa were collaborating energetically. Officially, they were brought together by the CIA in the secret supply of arms and consumer goods during the CIA's anti-Sukarno rebellion. Sasakawa told an interviewer, quote, I was taking charge of supplying materials to the anti-Sukarno camp. This was one of the first examples of the new CIA bringing in foreign proxies and cubouts to supply sterilized weapons for a secret war. Before the rebellion collapsed, the agency trained 42,000 Indonesian dissidents and mercenaries at bases in the Philippines. The sheer numbers involved offer a clue to the scale of the operation and to the number of people who were required to keep it all going at the quartermaster level. Air attacks by CIA mercenaries on shipping in Indonesian waters forced up insurance rates and brought commercial navigation to a halt, enabling Kadama, Sasakawa, Marcos, and his friend Lino Bokalan, the Kavite warlord, to make millions smuggling goods to Indonesian islands cut off from normal supplies. Although the attempt to topple Sukarno failed, Sasakawa was not discouraged. His methods proved much more effective than those of the CIA. He himself accounted how, during a state visit the Indonesian leader made to Tokyo, he made a present to Sukarno of a beautiful young Japanese girl named Devi, D-E-W-I, who became one of Sukarno's wives. By the way, uh, Indonesia was a, is a Muslim country, so uh, suitably wealthy men can have more than one wife. Continuing. In return, uh, uh, let me recap the last couple of sentences. Sasakawa himself recovered how, during a state visit, the Indonesian leader had made to Tokyo, he made a present to Sukarno of a beautiful young Japanese girl named Devi, who became one of Sukarno's wives. In return, Sasakawa was said to have become the agent for all trade between the two nations, which over the years involved billions of dollars. Never one to be sentimental, Sasakawa also boasted that he played a decisive part in the September 30th, 1965 coup d'etat that marked the end of Sukarno's reign. By the way, we spoke about that in For the Record Program number 1177. Continuing. Many of MacArthur's friends in Manila were bound to him by a common commitment to big money and fascism. 
in the islands, priority was given to defending billionaire landowners from peasant farmers who earned less than half, less than a dollar a day, forfeited half their land. Let me begin that again. Many of MacArthur's friends in Manila were bound to him by a common commitment to big money and fascism. In the islands, priority was given to defending billionaire landowners from peasant farmers who earned less than a dollar a day, forfeited half of their harvest, and could only make ends meet by borrowing from the landlord himself at 500% interest. The situation was getting worse, not better. In 1969, when a typical tenant farmer in Parlock province was still lucky to make $200 the entire year, wealthy young Pequino Aquino Jr. remarked that his wife Corey's big land-owning family, the Cojuangos, had a $500 million turnover. By the way, Pequino uh, Jr. became a CIA operative. His assassination uh, ultimately led to his widow becoming president of the Philippines and the son, Salvador Laurel of Jose Laurel, head of the Japanese occupation government in the Philippines, becoming her vice president. Continuing. Decade after decade, American officials studiously ignored the grievances of these rural poor, who along with the urban poor in Metro Manila, totaled 70% of the population. Back in 1935, when MacArthur first became Quezon's field marshal, a peasant rebellion had been in progress in the countryside for many years. As the Spanish Civil War raged in Europe, MacArthur's sponsors, among them Franco's wealthy consul in Manila, Andres Soriano, persuaded him that Filipino farmers were led by communist cadres plopping a Marxist regime. By the way, Andres Soriano, part of the famous Soriano family that owned and operated San Miguel breweries. Continuing. Let me recap the last sentence here for continuity. As the Spanish Civil War raged in Europe, MacArthur's sponsors, among them Franco's wealthy consul in Manila, Andres Soriano, persuaded him that Filipino farmers were led by communist cadres plotting a Marxist regime. Eventually, this became a self-fulfilling prophecy, but it was not true in the early decades. Even Luis Peruc, P-A-R-U-C, the leader of the Peasant Rebellion, did not join the Communist Party until four years after MacArthur became Field Marshal. As were many others, he was driven to it. Most Filipinos started out as grievance guerrillas, not as Marxists, and surprisingly few ever became ideological converts. But that mattered not at all. During the Japanese occupation, this unequal conflict between landlords and farmers intensified. Big landowners supported the Japanese because the Japanese protected their property. Pendant farmers were brutally treated and their produce confiscated. To fight back, Mamie joined Turok's Huk Baba Hop, the People's Anti-Japanese Army, which soon numbered 30,000 men. Unfortunately, the Hook leaders offended American guerrilla officers by refusing to put themselves under American command. The Americans retaliated by issuing a general order that all anti-Japanese guerrillas who were not members of USAFFE were enemies of the American government. Thereafter, USAFFE guerrillas 
did everything they could to discredit the Hucks, reporting to MacArthur inaccurately that they were a, quote, subversive, radical organization, its operations of carnage, revenge, banditry, and hijacking never have been equal in any part of the history of the Philippines, unquote. After fighting the Japanese so energetically, the Hooks hoped to have American support to resolve... Begin again. After fighting the Japanese so energetically, the Hooks hoped to have American support to resolve their grievances, but were treated as enemies instead of allies. MacArthur arrested Luis Taruk when the Hucks turned over their wartime rosters to the U.S. Army as a gesture of good faith. The lists were used to identify, arrest, or kill Hook veterans, or were circulated among landlords and employers who turned down Hooks for jobs and evicted them as undesirable tenants. The worst incident was the massacre of 109 hook guerrillas at Malolos in Bulacan, the town where Ferdinand Marcos had been the guest of friends running the constabulary. Hook Squadron 77 was walking home to Pampagania in early February of 1945, passing through Malolos. American and Philippine soldiers surrounded the Hooks, disarmed them, and took them before a USAFFE colonel named Adonias McClang, M-A-C-L-A-N-G. He accused them of looting the town. Without a trial, McClang forced the Hooks to dig a mass grave, then had his soldiers shoot them all. Those only wounded were clubbed to death with their shovels. American counterintelligence officers were present the entire time. They later picked McClang to be the mayor of Malolos. In 1946, the Hook Army disbanded as its leaders shifted to political campaigning in an effort to win legislative representation in Congress by accepting channels. The Democratic approach proved impossible, however. Landowners paid vigilante groups to beat up anyone campaigning for land reform. A U.S. official explained, quote, only if U.S. security were directly threatened would we assist in realizing land reform in the Philippines. It would be difficult, but we could pull it off. If the hooks had been perceived as more of a threat, we would have done what we did in Japan, Korea, and Taiwan, unquote. In all three countries, the United States forced through draconian land reform measures. But in the Philippines, Washington chose not to follow the same policy. Thus, the hook threat really was not grave and was purposely distorted for purely political ends. Long after granting independence to the Philippines, America would continue to use the same hook boogeyman to justify political manipulations in Manila and its military presence in the islands. Looking back at it now, American posturing in those days had the demented quality in paintings by Hieronymus Bosch, like a man with a violin sticking out of his A blank blank. And uh, again, note the continuity in Cold War policy uh, between the fascism of Chiang Kai-shek, the fascism of uh, Japanese oligarchs who had been part of the Imperial Japanese Empire and participated in Golden Lily, and U.S. Cold War aims in the Pacific, the Philippines in particular, and note again the uh, relationship between Ferdinand Marcos and Sasakawa Goichi, and also uh, note 
uh, how Ferdinand Marcos uh, had his U.S. agent uh, credentials minted, so to speak, or at least uh, solidified by operating uh, at uh, Sasakawa's behest as a CIA operative in the 1950s attempts at uh, ousting General uh, uh, President Sukarno of Indonesia. He was uh, succeeded by President Suharto in 1965. And what we're going to look at in conclusion is how uh, the the manner in which uh, cronies of Douglas MacArthur and people who were uh, front and center in the post-World War II uh, government in the Philippines had been people who were associated not only with the Japanese occupation government, but with the puppet legislature in the Philippines at the time, and who in turn were part of the Japanese protection of the landed aristocracy in the Philippines, which in turn was opposed by various movements, some of them uh, military movements like the Hooks, some of them political as the Hooks attempted to become. And uh, next, on March 19th, this is 1945, Tokyo ordered that President Jose Varel be flown to Japan to establish a government in exile. Three days later, Varel and other leading collaborators, among them Benino Aquino Sr. of the Kalabapi Party, left Bagayo secretly. The rest of the puppet government, including Manuel Rojas, remained Behind. So note that Akino Sr. was part of the uh, Japanese occupation milieu in the Philippines. And note also how uh, the aforementioned uh, Benino Akino Sr., he was part of that, and also Manuel Rojas as well. And uh, reading now from the Marcos Dynasty. Locked away in the files of U.S. Attorney General Tom Clark was a secret report identifying Manuel Rojas as one of the leading Filipino collaborators during World War II. This document, still classified decades later, contained hard evidence that members of the Senate, Cabinet, and Rojas himself had helped the Japanese wipe out Filipino and American guerrillas, seize food from poor farmers to feed Japanese troops, and draft the Lowell government's declaration of war against the United States. And again, Malmo Rojas, as we will see, as we will see, rather, uh, became uh, Douglas MacArthur's uh, main man, so to speak, in the MacArthur uh, government in the Philippines, in, in the post-war Philippines. Continuing with what the secret that long ago, MacArthur had chosen Rojas as the man to do his bidding. Rojas's great appeal laid in the elasticity of his convictions. He was MacArthur's doppelganger. Families sent petitions to Rojas, asking for the release from detention of Laurel and his colleagues. Rojas did nothing. MacArthur had ordained that Laurel and the others would remain confined in Japan's Sagamo prison until Rojas had dis- displaced Osmania as president. To prepare for independence on his terms, MacArthur wanted the pre-war Congress recalled, but so many of its members were collaborators with the Japanese that a quorum was impossible. President Osmania wanted to wait until the accused among them had been tried. 
Otherwise, legislative immunity would make a mockery of the issue. Rojas countered that they could personally determine who was guilty or innocent. MacArthur agreed, Osmania capitulated, and the old Congress reconvened in June of 1945. With Rojas securely in power, MacArthur decided that the time had come to put the collaboration issue to rest. The leading collaborators were let out of Sugamo and brought back from Japan for trial with Jose Lorel's case as the centerpiece. Under pressure from President Rojas, the courts evolved a peculiar theory that a public official was not responsible for his public behavior if a disclaimer was expressed after the fact. The wartime elite claimed that they had been motivated only by patriotism and therefore were innocent. The courts upheld this defense. After years of being kept incommunicado by MacArthur, Lowell finally was released. As he was freed, he observed trenchantly that all Filipinos were collaborators. Thanks to his foresight, Lorel's political power was intact. And so again, basically, uh, in order to not only maintain uh, the economic privilege, not only of American corporations and individuals in the Philippines, but also of uh, their Japanese and uh, Chinese Kuomintang Cold War allies, uh, the Americans basically kept the same interests in power. Ultimately, again, uh, Benino Aquino Jr.'s wife, Corazon, widow Corazon, became president of the Philippines with Salvador Laurel, uh, son of Jose Laurel, the head of the Japanese occupation government, as her vice president. Uh, all of that indicating that the things were uh, all in the family, so to speak, in the Philippines. Again, the continuity uh, between the World War II period, between the uh, Chinese Kuomintang fascists and the Japanese fascists, and uh, the uh, fascinating class dynamics uh, in the Philippine landowning uh, situation where the oligarchs basically uh, enjoyed the protection of the Japanese, then the protection of the Americans, and did so to the detriment of the uh, vast majority of uh, Philippine farmers who ate it raw, to make a long story short. That also led to the Hook Rebellion, and it was the put-down of the Hook Rebellion by Lansdale, Edward Lansdale, that helped to garnish his covert actions resume at the CIA in the post-war period. Again, uh, links will enable you to get uh, to subscribe to the podcast, to get the flash drive with all of my life's work on it, now about to be updated, and uh, also to uh, use the Patreon sites as well, the three one-hour-plus weekly talks, machine transcripts, and a bi-weekly Zoom Q&A session. This concludes for the record program number 1261, Bong Bong and the Marcos Continuum. This is being recorded on September 23rd of the year 2022. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun.